This project was produced by Planet FM with support from New Zealand On Air. The series features 15 candid conversations with people from migrant and former refugee backgrounds, sharing their stories, their lived experience, their own perspectives, and covering some sensitive topics. I'm Alina from Storio, and you're listening to Pass the Mic. Due to the global pandemic, we've recorded these conversations from the comfort of our homes. This is episode 12. In this episode, I'm talking to Marie Isabel Landingen, who is a Filipino New Zealander. So I'm very excited to have you here, Marie. I was actually talking to Ashley um, a few days ago about these podcasts, and it's just really awesome to be able to talk about something that people don't usually seem to have the time to talk about, but it really shapes, like, I guess, how you view the world um, and how you view yourself. So it's nice to be able to talk about it. I think you're creating a really wonderful space and safe space to talk about it. So I'm really happy to be here. I think it's awesome. (laughs) I'm really excited to dive into your story, but I thought let's turn this a bit on its head and start with urban planning because I'm super curious about it. So I guess I'll start off with the fact that I studied a Bachelor of Urban Planning Honours at the University of Auckland. Um, So how I came to be in that space first was kind of because I had this vague interest in helping people. It's like the vaguest thing possible. Um, I didn't know who I wanted to help. Um, I didn't know how, but I always saw that planning had like a good mix of all of the different interests I had and being creative, learning about stories, um, people and leaving some sort of impact. Um, So that's where I stumbled upon. And then as I studied my degree, I started to realize there's a lot about social justice involved with urban planning, but the way that people planned was very Eurocentric. And in terms of studying planning in New Zealand, we didn't really learn much about um, like Teo Māori. We had maybe a few papers, but it wasn't embedded in how we did things. It was like kind of like a, here's an extra elective about Teo Māori. Um, and you kind of had to learn more about it yourself to be able to fully understand. You didn't really get that um I guess, really expansive foundation at university. And then as I kind of went on um, in the side, I also became really interested in learning more about my identity. And I always struggled a bit with my identity because I'm like a Filipino, but I'm also not Filipino enough. And I'm New Zealander, but I'm not New Zealander enough. Um, So there was a bit of that in the background as well. aligned with what I was doing at university. And then I started to come up with this question that was like, well, I'm learning all about, you know, European ways of planning, um, Te Māori ways of planning, um, and maybe here and there we learn about planning in different countries, but I actually don't know much about, you know, Asian or, um, you know, African or bits of American, but there's all these different ways of doing things, but there are definitely certain voices that you didn't hear in your academic studies. Mm. And could you, Mary, could you expand a little bit on what urban planning actually means? Oh, that's a, yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, I always end up talking about planning and then I realize that people don't actually know what it is. Um, but urban planning is about process in creating cities um, and communities. It really dabbles between law, creative arts, um, environmental studies, economics. So basically all of the processes that 
um, make the cities that we live in. Um, so urban planning is really focused on the urban side of things, but there's different types of planning out there. There can be like social planning that really focuses on people, community planning. Um, there can be economics planning, um, all different types of planning. But my interest is more about like dense urban cities. I've always been interested in cities. So. Oh, it's tied so much into social impact, justice, like equity issues, all of the things, and especially actually culturally. Like, yeah, I would love to hear you were saying before about the cultural part of like um, your identity and how that comes through your the urban planning work. Because I didn't see much of the minority perspective in planning, and I guess the, I sort of started to be interested in the marginalized voices in planning. Um, and the thing with planning as well is that it's very oriented around what the public sector does. So I started to be quite interested in government processes. When you when you think of it from that perspective, it's like, who are we marginalizing from a public government perspective? So all of those different thoughts sort of ended up with this big question about, is planning really going to deliver social justice if we don't have these voices involved? And one thing as well was that um, at my school, there weren't that many minorities. It was very, in the years before mine, it was very uncommon to see lots of minorities studying planning. Why do you think there are not many people from minority groups? Is it, because I'm kind of thinking, you know, how we have, for example, technology sector, and it's heavily um, male, right? It's heavily gendered, maybe not as as much if, like ethnic. It's quite ethnically diverse now, but it's quite, well, getting there, but it's quite gendered. And um, kind of goes, you know, kind of goes like historically to how the maths and physics and subjects were like smart for smart for for dudes and women were allowed. Women were more like liberal arts kind of or teaching caring jobs, right? But with urban planning, because I don't really have much context historically, how come do you reckon there are not enough minorities? Yeah, good question. It's something that I should really be reading up on, so I don't know if I'm the best person to ask about that, but I sort of suspect that it might be because it's quite a niche discipline. Um, it's some, it must be something about opportunities to access planning. Um, when I started planning, I was lucky because I knew what planning was. Um, my dad is a planner, so that's a big advantage, but not everyone has a parent who does planning or knows a planner. Um, or knows that it exists. Like, I remember being at university and being one of those people who show people around um, university. And then they would ask, what's planning? Every single year, someone asks me what planning is. And it goes to show that people didn't have access to the knowledge about planning. To draw sort of the th- similar thread to a lot of other conversations, or actually not just from past the mic, but from my story of work, just seeing how much what we do was influenced by our parents in our like early years and I guess it's again just goes to show that people who have usually who work in lots of advocacy or social work positions or whatnot um, first of all it's because they've experienced hardships or marginalizations or whatever in their lifetime and they kind of choosing to be in those positions which is interesting and kind of makes sense but in terms of the positions like that like how much we're influenced by what our parents did or what they knew and again that goes to show the intergenerational um complexities of like if if for a long time you've denied access to particular fields to particular groups how that will just you know it will be a really hard thing to overcome we have to be really active right like we have to whether it's at schools or universities or whatever we have to be so active to try to 
just like sort of untangle those intergenerations. We're obviously here talking about ethnic communities or different cultures, but maybe there are other identities that in your work that you see um, in urban planning, the absence of particular voices, like maybe some practical examples of how it actually affects, like what are the outcomes that happen? We do have this consultation process. So if we um, wanted to, say, build something, build a road or build an important building somewhere, um, we have a legal process that requires us to notify and consult with people. Um, but that process has like a time period and there's so much logistics behind it. Um, sometimes you go to consultation um, events and the type of people who show up are a certain type of people and it's definitely not representative of every single person who could be impacted and there's multiple reasons for that such as the event could be held at the wrong time um, could be held at the wrong place or just not run in a way that's accessible to a lot of people i would love to hear any examples maybe like that you experience in your work where, where it's obvious like oh well this group is not benefiting I guess one example I do have, um, so I work in the transport space, so everything's a bit transport oriented. Um, but I guess there's one one bit of work um, at work that we're doing around bus priority. So bus priority is basically trying to prioritize the mode of using the bus and public transport um, on Hamilton State Highways um, to try and encourage public transport ridership. In a way, although it's not front of mind, um, where you decide to put bus priority, um, where you decide to make it easier to catch the bus, also relates to what sort of communities will benefit the most from it. My honors year project was about the spatial relationship between ethnic inequality and public transport access. So when I was hopping onto this public transport project, you sort of go back to that question, what you studied back at uni, and it's like, where are we going to put these benefits and are we going to increase ethnic inequality because of it or are we going to address ethnic inequality um, and access to opportunities so i'd love to hear a bit more about what are the things that you do yeah so um i do too much i think that's what i should start off with um and i think it's been something that has been a question in my mind am i doing too much and not able to give enough time to these things um but it's hard i feel like there's just so much to do. <laughs> um, so outside of being a planner and exploring the transport space, um, I also involved with Multi-Ethnic Young Leaders Network. Um, so it's a recently established organization trying to build a pipeline of diverse leadership in Aotearoa. Um, and in that organization, I work as a project lead for the Rangatahi Leadership Opportunities Database. Um, which really aligns with what I'm interested in, which is access to opportunities in a different way, like the, the softer side of the hard infrastructure stuff I do on the day-to-day. -day. And it's basically trying to create a place where people can find leadership opportunities because we found that leadership opportunities tend to be something that you get shoulder taps from or something that you find out because you happen to know someone or you are active in that space. But the people who would benefit most from it sometimes are completely oblivious to these things. So we're trying to bridge that gap. On the other side as well, I do some work for Authenticity Aotearoa. Um, so I'm helping with the Woman of, uh, Woman of Conference, Woman of Color Conference, which will be a great initiative to do. And we're trying to bring together, um, yeah, Woman of Color to celebrate them as well as, I guess, explore all of the different um, issues that we face. So it's quite a new initiative. We only started a few weeks ago, but I'm really excited about that. There's so much to learn. Um, 
and I'm still quite new to the journey, so it's there's definitely a lot to learn. Yeah, yeah. And Marie, you know what? I'm reflecting something that I ask a lot and we talk about a lot on story on story or interviews is um the reason why I started interviewing people is that I always felt like there was so much to do and I need to do all of it and if I'm not doing enough like I constantly feel like I'm not doing enough and constantly felt like there was this pressure of like I guess I put on myself of like success but in the contribution impact space so my success wasn't defined by the ladder of like career and money and boats or whatever it is but it was more about like how much do I do? How much more can I do? How much volunteer can I do? What I can contribute to? And I wanted to, um, I guess, interview and ask people if they felt the same and if they did like that and then imposter syndrome and whatever else. And I, because you, I feel like we kind of relate in terms of, you just said you're doing too much and you did talk about imposter syndrome in your um, form for the podcast as well. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, How do you feel like doing yeah, like what are your relationships to those feelings like not doing enough or imposter syndrome stuff? And I think I've always felt like I'm never enough. It's something I really need to unlearn. Um, I think there is just so much to do. When I studied urban planning and I learned about social justice um, and learned about people, I just realized there's just so much to have to solve in the world. And being someone who's sort of in a semi-privileged space to be able to have the time to volunteer, um, you know, have the mind space to even think about, I felt obligated to at least try and give back. And also just goes back to how I was raised as well. Like, I guess the reason why I'm even in New Zealand is because my dad was lucky enough to have an opportunity to study here. If he didn't have that um, and he didn't, you know, strive academically to get a scholarship or whatever, my family wouldn't be here and I wouldn't have been building a life in New Zealand. So it kind of goes back to that. I'm privileged because of that. So many other people or a different family could have received that. It's only fair if I try to advance people like myself, like a personal color um, who's thriving in New Zealand. If I try to enable other people to be able to see that they can be that as well. So while I get imposter syndrome, I think I think it comes because I feel like there's just so much to do um, and it never ends. But I'm learning that it's like, you know, even little things um, and having chats like these and being able to even tell people that you're not alone, I think has an impact. Um, But it's definitely hard. (laughs) It's definitely hard. Yeah, I think for me, my journey was unlearning that through, well, not unlearning, but also relearning those things through story work, like a lot of the, and obviously now past the mic, like asking and talking to other people about it and feeling like, oh, cool, we're like, all of us feel the same which makes it a bit like, oh, okay, so why are we subjecting ourselves to like overthinking and imposter syndrome? Yes, yeah, so reminded to myself, why am I doing this work? Out of delight or out of lack? Yeah, it's interesting because I think it does come from a space of love. Like I, I do do my work because I want people to be able to receive the same privileges. I want to pay it forward. Um, so it is coming from a place of compassion and understanding what it's like to not have those privileges. But that imposter syndrome and urgency around like needing to do more, I think we'll never really leave until we feel like what we're doing is normal. Um, Because I feel like a lot of the um, ethnic diversity, inclusion, equity space has always been like this activist sort of thing where like we're always trying to challenge something because it's never the norm, which it really should be, um, but we're just not there yet. So it sort of invites, I feel it invites that sort of, 
thinking that what we're doing really needs to, you know, full steam ahead. It's never enough. You have to get there, <laughs> you know, on this train that never ends. But um, we're heading somewhere, you know. But yeah, we're only people and a lot of us are volunteers. So it, we need to be sustainable about it. Yes, yes, for sure, for sure. So tell me, Marie, tell me um, if we kind of go back to like you know your roots I guess or like your identity or how it got defined maybe like or being defined would love to hear a little bit about your maybe childhood like where did you grow up uh what kind of influences you had on your identity to form you in the person you are today oh deep question (laughs) sure um so I'm 22 years old I think I should start off with that so um yeah, in that sort of interesting 20s space where I have time to think about this, but also freaking out about the future. So it's a good time to be asking questions like this. Um, I'm a Filipino New Zealander. I think that's the label I've decided to give myself at the moment. I was born in Manila, um, which is one of the biggest cities in the Philippines, um, and raised in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. And currently, for about a month and a bit, I've been based in Kirikiriroa, Hamilton. And I moved a lot as a kid. So I lived in a town called Antipolo, Rizal, which is just on the border of Manila. Um, that's where I was raised straight after being born. Um, and then I briefly moved to Brisbane with my parents because my dad, my dad, um, being the great academic person he is, he got a scholarship to do his master's there. So he brought the family. Um, and then we went back and then my brother was born in the Philippines. And so there was a family of four. And then we lived in the Philippines until I was six. And then again, my dad got an opportunity to study um, at the University of Auckland. So we moved to Auckland. And I think having that sort of background where I was always moving around um, and especially moving around because my dad had opportunities in different places I think I always had this sort of weird weird interpretation of home like home was always moving um, but home was always where my family was so my little family of four myself my parents and my younger brother and then I guess growing up as like an eldest daughter of a Filipino family because our family as well didn't have extended family in New Zealand, I think that also was quite an interesting experience in hindsight. Because Filipinos, if you've met any, we're very family-oriented. Um, and we have like big gatherings, like huge fiestas. <laughs> but when I grew up, yeah, we had that with like family friends, but it's not the same as being with family. So that's why over the years, um, when I've had the opportunity to go back to the Philippines, I sometimes feel quite detached to being Filipino because I still grew up a bit like a kiwi but then at home I'm still Filipino so again it's that whole like dichotomy like I'm Filipino and New Zealand but I'm not New Zealander enough to be a New Zealander. Yeah I wanted to ask you about that because you wrote that as well online um, as I'm too Filipino to be a kiwi and too kiwi to be Filipino. How does those identities intertwine for you? I think I still struggle to know what a kiwi is <laughs> After growing up in Auckland, um, there's definitely a different view of being Kiwi in Auckland compared to other cities. I think that's one thing that I've realized, especially living in Hamilton now. So first, I don't really know what Kiwi is, but I did feel like I wasn't Kiwi enough. Um, And I think when I was quite young, so when I just moved to New Zealand, there were a lot of things about our culture here that was really culture here in New Zealand that was very different to like Filipino culture so I always felt othered because of that and then over the years you know as a little kid you want to fit in so 
I always try to fit in my interpretation of what being Kiwi is like, you know, going on sleepovers. Sleepovers wasn't something that Filipino kids did. Um, and when my parents like heard that I wanted to go on a sleepover, they'd be like, what? Why would you want a sleepover? You have a bed in your room. <laughs> um, but things like that, like you think they're just like a way of life, but they're not necessarily that for everyone. And, you know, I like Filipino food and I didn't like having to eat a sandwich at lunch all the time. I wanted to eat rice. <laughs> Um, and I think even small things like that, you'd have different food to your classmates was also something that um, in hindsight did actually influence this feeling of being other. But I think as I grew up, I started to develop connections with, you know, the Asian community and people who sort of felt the same. And then from that, I felt a sense of belonging. It's definitely an evolving identity, you know, like it's not something that I can say I'm fully comfortable in, but getting there it's been interesting to hear on this podcast right like everyone has kind of similar experiences um around being a migrant or a refugee or a person who was born here but have belong or identify strongly with a different culture and everyone kind of found some ways that they're passionate about like you know basically using what to work with authenticity multi-ethnic young leaders obviously urban planning and the question kind of that I ask is like, what would, what would good leadership or good change look like? Like we all know there are problems of racism, belonging, othering. Well, it, it's hard because well, what I do with multi-ethnic young leaders is we're trying to build the future pipeline of leaders. So there's two things that need to be done. It's like, how do we make the leaders of the future, you know, think in the way that we want them to think, you know, to be more inclusive, to be more empathetic, um, to serve people instead of serving an interest. You know, it's about it's about people at the end of the day, being a leader. There's that end. And then there's also the existing leaders, you know, the people who are right here, right now leading and are perpetuating exclusionary practices. There's two different approaches to that. Like one side, it's easy to teach people um, you know the right thing to do from the start but it's harder to unlearn things and like we talk about that you know imposter syndrome and stuff it's hard to unlearn things um, especially if you've always thought in like a traditional mindset that things should be done a certain way so I'm, I'm not too sure um, because as a young person who is sort of in that space where I'm more focused on the future and you know developing the people we have now I, I'm not too sure how we can actually help the people who are um, up there at the moment. In a way, um, one thing that I've always found was trying to understand people better is the best way forward, like for conflict resolution and that sort of stuff. If you can't agree, at least try to see from each other's sides. So it would be nice to have like a proper, you know, deep conversation like this with a leader and understand where are they coming from and why they've, you know, developed and thought in this way. But I think with any sort of change, there needs to be a community of change. Like it can't just be one person. There could be someone spearheading it, but like a champion for it. But it's something that requires a total mind shift from the whole leadership community um, that exists today. So that's a hard one. And as someone who's not even really a leader yet or at all, like it's sort of like, oh, I don't know how to challenge the leadership that exists at the moment. Um, yeah, the que I know the question is quite big, and it's because there are so many layers to, like, you know, you could be a CEO of a company, um, how do you lead? You can be a member of parliament, how do you lead from that perspective? But also you can be 
you know, a teacher at school, how do you lead from that perspective? How do you, you know, like all these layers. And I think the beauty of like everything you're kind of talking about now as well in your experiences and your um, work that you're doing is that people, I feel, get overwhelmed with, you know, if, if someone is like, hey, we have racism or we need to be better at inclusion or belonging or whatever. It's massive. It's such a massive, complicated problem. People feel overwhelmed, with like, oh my God, where do I start? Or how do I even contribute? Or it's too much. But I guess the beauty is that there are so many of us, right? Like, the, for example, even like with you and everyone planning, I don't even know much about everyone. Like I knew because my friend recently that I met is in this urban planning, but I ha- had no idea that it's a thing. And kind of, I guess, trusting that we are all in our own little like worlds where we can have our little impact. Like, and that adds up. Little things like talking to kids about different cultures when they're like, you know, that they, that exist. So when they go to school, they don't propagate the same old status quo bullshit <laughs> and hurt other kids just by accident but not because they don't know yeah and and that's why i think leadership should be like to be a good leader you really need to have an element of paying it forward like no one person can do everything so as much as you can empower other people to think in a way that will serve others and you know pass it on and then because we know that we can't make change unless lots of people do it isn't that the way to do it, you know, to share leadership and share these sorts of ways of thinking? I wanted to ask you, Marie, actually, before we dive into our last topic of um, quickfire, did you have any other things you wanted to discuss or touch on that we sort of discussed before the podcast, but I just wanted to check in with you? Mm, I did like that question you had about what's your relationship with Mori and Tetiriti. Yeah, it's interesting because like with everything that we've talked about, it's an evolving thing. If your identity with yourself is like sort of iffy, the relationship you have with a different identity is probably the same as well. So I would say that one of those things with understanding what it's like to be an ethnic person in New Zealand is having to know this relationship as well, but that it's okay if you don't know as well. Um, I only really learned about Tatiriti and I guess my relationship with Telmori and things like that through self-directed learning. Um, and it's really unfortunate that that's how we, that's how we learn it. Um, there isn't really a clear way of trying to understand how this works and how you fit into this, I guess, bicultural framework in New Zealand. The idea that there is like being a migrant or, or even just an ethnic person of particular other cultures born here, like how do you fit within the bicultural narrative, like whenever people talk about Tsiriti and Pakeha and how the relationship is like and what does it mean to give land back or what does it mean to give power back or what does it mean to honor certain things and how, yeah, like, honestly, I think we have, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever really heard or engaged or um, had opportunities to have these conversations with people, like, what does it mean to us as as non-Maori, non-Pakeha people. Um, what was your self-directed learning? Like, what did you, what, you know, can you tell me actually a little bit more about that? Like, what does it look like? What did it look like for you? Yeah, so I guess the main thing is just understanding our history around it. I think um, there is sort of an obligation that because you've moved to New Zealand um, and you want to, you know, help marginalized communities, you should probably look to the people who've been here for far longer than us and have been marginalized. So it's sort of having to learn about more than what you get taught in social studies at school, um, actually going back and reading up on it. So it's largely been that. Um, and as much as possible, trying to understand 
or you know use the um, tereo as well in a respectful way, not in a tokenistic way that people tend to do. So I think the learning journey differs per person, but it is just a matter of you should really try and learn um, if you can. It there is no blueprint. Um, we just have to be respectful around it, no matter how, if we are going to learn something from the internet, you know, just make sure you're not doing misinformation or using that knowledge disrespectfully. So it is coming with a sense of respect um, and being open to conversation, I think, um, and coming in with like a, a mind that's ready to learn rather than feeling like you know everything. Um, I think, and then that goes back to the, I don't feel like I'm good enough because there's so much out there. We just need to be open to learning all the time. Oh, Oh, yes. I feel like we should have a whole podcast on ethnic relations with Titiriti, Teawa, uh, where we share like how we go with it, teach each other, educate each other, share fears and learnings and challenges, 100%. I'll jump into quick fire. The first one is a simple one. And the one that I love uh, personally hearing about is food. Um, I would love to hear your favorite meal and if it could be a Filipino meal, it would be great. Um, but also, if you ha- if, if it's not Filipino, something else, that's cool too. Yes, I recommend everyone to try palabok. Um, it's a noodle dish from the Philippines, and it's like my all-time favorite. My mom always makes it when I go home. Uh, so <laughs> you can see how much it is my favorite. <laughs> there is this place in West Auckland called Gold Ribbon, um, and they just have lots of Filipino dishes. Highly recommend. Support your Filipino community. So, if you if you could be the main character in the movie or TV show, what would it be? I have always liked Mulan since I was little. Um, the animated movie one, that Mulan. Um, yeah, I just loved what she represented, and she made me feel like I need to be a fierce woman when I grow up. Love it. Yes, yes. Um, if you could propose one policy to New Zealand Parliament, New Zealand government, or to an organization of your choice, <laughs> what could it be? Free public transport. <laughs> I mean, I was talking earlier about like access to opportunities and being able to freely move around cities is a big part of it. So if we can get people to first stop killing the environment with their cars and to, you know, be able to access where they need to go free public transport and to close off on my one of my favorite questions is what makes you feel like a badass interesting because like i see badass as like you know fighting fire type of thing but for me it's actually having downtime and having time to reflect and have these sorts of meaningful conversations i feel like we get so caught up on like you know the day-to-day gotta pay my bills whatever but having like meaningful conversations like this and you know finding purpose and getting support from friends and loved ones around you know, navigating this weird world. I think it brings meaning to things and I think it makes me feel more empowered to take each day. That was Marie. Thank you everyone for listening. If you haven't already, check out the 14 other incredible conversations in the series. Share, subscribe, send to someone who might benefit from either feeling seen or learning more about ethnic experiences in Aotearoa. These conversations are a collaboration of Belong Aotearoa, Planet FM, Storio, and Sport Waitakere. So you can find the links to those excellent organizations in the bio. Thank you to our funder, Auckland Council Regional Development Fund, and to New Zealand On Air. Yeah.